Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. In his 1966 essay, The Development of the Black Revolutionary Artist, James T. Stewart, like many of his contemporaries in the then-emerging Black arts movement, meditates at length on the relationship between aesthetics and racial worldviews. Reflecting on the different ways that white and black people look at the world, Stewart argues, existing white paradigms or models do not correspond to the realities of black existence. It is imperative that we construct models with different basic assumptions. For Stewart, there is no universal in art, and the political and epistemological disparities between the two populations he considers are so obvious as to be necessarily central to any discussion about African-American art. As he writes late in the essay, Art cannot apologize out of existence the philosophical and ethical position of the artist. After all, the artist is a man in society, and his social attitudes are just as relevant to his art as his aesthetic position. More recently, the anthropologist Arlene Davila brings a similar level of scrutiny not just to art at the level of symbol and representation, but to art as institution and marketplace insisting that a misguided faith in equality undergirds the material practices that inform the presentation and validation of creative work, Davila writes, we are overdue to address the history and mechanics of racism in the arts. Only through this work can we go beyond the illusions that dominate our perception, treatment, and recognition of people of color and their artistic contributions. As both of these writers suggest, a half-century apart, art, like any other human activity, is subject to the hazards and vicissitudes racism produces elsewhere in our society. In situating the work of the writer, the painter, the musician in its proper social context, with an awareness of racism's bearing on those artists' lives, we merge the practice of creativity with the project of addressing white supremacy. On today's show, we continue thinking about the Humanities Center's year-long anti-racism theme by turning to the relationship between anti-racism and the arts. I'll sit down for two different conversations that help us engage questions about aesthetics, representation, and social justice with two key voices in our community. From TTU's Women's and Gender Studies program, Doctora Leslie C. Sotomayor II, and from the local gallery, East Lubbock Art House, Danielle Demetria East. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanity Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. 
Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. First up on the show today, I speak with Doctora Leslie C. Sotomayor II, a visiting assistant professor in women's and gender studies here at Texas Tech. Leslie is an artist, a scholar, a curator, and an educator. And as you'll hear from our conversation, her perspective on the intersections between art and justice provides a productive extension of our ongoing contemplation of anti-racism. Well, I'm so grateful, Leslie, for you sitting down and talking with me today. Um, as we continue working through discussions related to our anti-racism theme with the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Um, And you're a fairly recent arrival to our campus. You've just started this fall. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the variety of work that you do and and what what you'll be doing at Texas Tech. Absolutely. Yes. So um, I transitioned into the area over the summer um, and you know, it's a very different landscape, not only in nature, um, but also ge- ge- geographically, right? But also as far as community, um, the, you know, compared to, I moved from the Northeast, um, from Pencil- Pennsylvania. Um, and so the the demographic landscape is very different. The lin- linguistic landscape is very different here. Um, and all things that, I want and that I've been um, wanting for some for some time, especially being at a Hispanic serving institution, being one of the big draws as a first generation, um, you know, PhD um, uh, professor in the field. Um, Those were some of the big highlights that, um, you know, brought me into um, not only applying, but but really considering this as a new home for my family and myself. Um, and so my, my, you know, formal PhD work is in art education and women's and gender and sexuality studies um, with a focus on Latino studies, Latin American history, fine arts, painting and drawing, African studies, Black feminist thought, um, and Chicana feminism, right? So this very um, highly interdisciplinary background that, of course, at the time, I didn't realize that that's what I was doing, right? And that that had a name, <laughs> like interdisciplinary. Um, I was, um, you know, as we go through life and take and take these steps, um, you know, that I was uh, being intentional in you know, honoring what I felt drawn to and what I felt I needed for myself um, and my own feminist praxis, um, you know, these things kind of, kind of began to take shape in a, in a more organic form. And so that involves my studio process um, as a painter and site specific installation um, creator, um, you know, and I can, 
I can explain what that means because that probably sounds pretty abstract. Um, and um, but I'm also a writer and um, a curator, um, an educator, a researcher, um, and a scholar. So all of these things I see as um, holistic. They they make up who I who I am as a as a whole being, um, and. Um, you know, I, I try to be very intentional about um, embodying these components as uh, practical um, in my everyday life, um, and certainly through my through my teaching as integrated as whole spaces working um, from whole identities. Well, we're thinking this month about the relationship of the arts and creative activity to an anti-racist project. Um, and in describing the various kinds of work you did, you pointed out the intersections, right, between um, who you are as a scholar in the most traditionally defined sense and who you are as an artist. And you mentioned your curatorial work. Um, can you give us your thoughts about what is the importance of creative activity and artistic production in terms of bringing about change for the better in our society? Absolutely. Um, I think I have I have a couple of different thoughts on this um, and they're layered. Right. So, you know, I'm coming from the stance and the belief and the assumption um, that we are all creative beings. We are all, as human beings, expressions of creativity in a variety of different of different ways. In my in my with my background in fine arts, right, um, that is intersected with feminism, um, identity politics, right, my own history as a Latina in the United States, and my ancestry and heritage. Um, there, there has been a pattern that I have witnessed and experienced in my life about, um, you know, what does all of that have to do with the arts and in the art world? Right. And if we look at historically, um, creative forms of expression have always existed, right? They continue to exist. And the, 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 the ongoing problems that arise is, who's included in these conversations and who's excluded from them, right? And if I'm speaking within um, the art world, right, there has been a very intentional segregation of who is allowed access to uh, be represented, um, how to be represented, when to be represented, by whom, right? And so these become really significant places for inquiry and opportunities for change to um, to challenge and disrupt, right, systemic discrimination and racism, right? Um, you know, if we're, if we're coming from the praxis of, you know, the acknowledgement and the, the place of um, historical accuracy of white supremacy, um, you know, creating the system that we all swim in, right? That we all exist, we all breathe in, we are all a part of and implicit in in some capacity, then we also have to recognize that the segregation and the boundaries that are created within these systems 
uh, need to be interrogated, right? And so the creative arts um, is a way to interrogate what has happened, what is happening, and how we want to move forward in future conversations about these things. So thinking about these questions of uh inclusion and inclusivity and redressing um, exclusions that have been historical to art and art communities. How does this uh, combine with debates about aesthetics? So for instance, what would you say to the person who argues that art should be more abstract in its um, addressing uh, a vision of the world, right? Or presenting a vision of the world. What would you say to the person who says, like, if we include all of these political arguments and debates within art, it ceases to be art and it becomes something else. It becomes a kind of propaganda or it somehow denigrates what art is supposed to be. What do you say to someone who has that uh, much more traditional view of the sure, arts? Sure, um, which I've encountered a lot of um, in my in my life and in my studio work. Um, and so I think that this is a fairly common um, thought. Um, and, you know, it, the first thing I have to say is that as a foundational premise that is um, lacking simply because I feel that as human beings, we are all creative expressions and sculptures. We are all, um, you know, what is the cliche, right? Um, life is art, art is life, right? Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the premise that I, um, that I am viewing these conversations through is not only a premise of you know, everything in life is art because that's the lens that I choose to put on. It's because that is what my experiences from day to day show me repeatedly. I cannot separate my experiences as a woman, mother, curator, artist, scholar, writer from what I do, from my work right? From every, every day. Um, I do not have the luxury or the privilege. And I would argue that probably all of us would feel like this in some capacity that, um, to, to, um, fragment myself and detach from these things that, um, that I experience and face every single day, right? I do not have the option to not be discriminated against. I do not have the option not to, um, you know, uh, be judged about the language that I choose to use and implement throughout my day, right? These are not, those are things that occur that have nothing to do with me, but have everything to do with me at the same time, right? And so, I feel that it's extremely, it's very problematic to be, um, to, to, to come into this conversation with the perspectives of leave your identities at the door, right? Because, um, it doesn't account for the, the, the people who do have that stance. It doesn't, they're not accounting for their own privilege and positionality, right? Which to me indicates 
a lack of honesty to self. And, um, you know, so if we cannot be honest with ourselves, how can we be honest with others? Right. That's then that becomes another another boundary, another border that has to be crossed. And I think that these often tie back to questions of our humanity. Well, thinking about the artist's sort of material place in the world, right? And coming back to some of the comments you just offered about pushing past this idea of art as a kind of partitioned off activity separate from everyday life. Can you talk about your own style as an artist and and how the premises that you bring to your, you know, your view of art broadly, how that figures into the way you produce art yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, the current uh, work that I'm developing is a series around um, looking at my paternal ancestry and lineage, right? And the Taino um, people, um, the Taino are indigenous um, people um, from the Caribbean predominantly. And my grandmother um, was Taina um, from Puerto Rico, Utuado, uh, which is considered one of the, you know, cradles of the Taino people. And it's a huge archaeological site um, in Puerto Rico. And, and the reason that I, that I um, am going into um, understanding more about my grandmother's Taina ancestry and roots is because, well, for, for a few reasons, I, I went um, to a, a conference a few years ago and one of the, um, the panel sessions was discussing how these indigenous people, the Tainos um, existed a long time ago, but no longer exist. Um, and it caused me to pause and really think about, you know, listen to what was being said. And then it, it prompted me to not only go back to my family, to my father and ask questions um, about, you know, his, his mother's um, um, culture and, and, and roots. But then I also decided to do some more research, right? What is the scholarship historically that, um, that exists on the Taino people? And you know, to my surprise, I was reading a lot of things about how, you know, with um, Christopher Columbus arriving in the Caribbean, uh, they were all wiped out, genocide, and they don't, they cease to exist. And I was like, wow, this is really different than not only my own actual family history that I'm, the little pieces that, I, that I'm aware of, but also as someone who frequents the Caribbean, this doesn't add up, right? Because I'm seeing it in all of these different ways in Cuba and Puerto Rico. So what, what is this about? Right. And, and really the punchline is it's, it's another way to erase a whole culture and um, group of people from existence, right. From our memories, from our histories. um, And, and what are the implications of this then 
to my own identity today, right? To my father's identity, to my aunts and uncles and cousins, right? To all of these other people who are still in one way or another maintaining um, aspects of the Taino culture alive through spirituality, through food, through language, through customs and traditions, right? What is the implication of these things? And so, you know, in the last decade, I believe, five to 10 years, there has been an increased visibility of scholarship and research from a historical point of view that is actually coming out and saying, you know what? Um, yeah, they, they, Taino people do still exist. And here is some of that evidence, right? And so the, the, the language and the, um, the conversation seems to be shifting where there's more visibility of this um, today, more than there was, um, you know, years ago. Um, but I say all of that because in my own researching of my own ancestry and heritage through my father's lineage of the Taino people, um, I am understanding myself better, right? And that comes out through my um, my my art practice, right? And so, um, so my connections to Taino spirituality or Taino um, culture and history, um, you know, I've been able to explore it not only with um, text, right, in writing about it or reading about it or listening to oral history about it and understanding, um, you know, the spiritual components, but also I am taking all of that data, right, that I'm that I'm gathering for myself. And that comes out in my paintings, right, that comes out in my, uh, you know, Anzaldúa speaks about how when she writes, she had to embody that it had to go through her body, in order for her to release it and get it out on paper through words, right. And so in a similar sense, that's how I view my creative art practice, right? I am absorbing and consuming these different aspects of my history, my identities, um, and it gets expelled on canvas, right? It gets expelled through paintings um, that do a few things. One of those things is documenting my process of that experience, which I consider to be a spiritual experience, right? It's a very meditative, contemplative, inner reflective, spiritual engagement. Um, And so it's documenting that process, but it's also helping me make sense of it, right? It's also helping me digest it and internalize it in a way that I need that for myself um, as an act of challenge, as an act of disruption, right? Um, I, you know, to be told that your people do not exist, that your language does not exist, that your culture does not exist. That's, that's a horrific violence. And so what do you do with that? when that's what you've has been laid on your back or you're carrying that inside of you in some capacity. Well, following up on that idea about the violence of erasure and the power of art to redress 
you know, these, these um, silencings that are not arbitrary, right. That are the, the uh, outcome of really malicious action or, you know, sort of cultural hierarchies. Um, uh, can you talk about your curatorial work and do you see your curatorial work as following the same path as offering an archive of experience that otherwise is imperiled by the various forms of violence and discrimination we've been talking about. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the word and the context uh, that I'm using curating in um, is, is an expansive one. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I see myself as a curator of curriculum. I see myself as a curator of art. Um, and so it's, it's an active word. It's not passive and it's intentional work. Right. And so, um, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, someone who works in a museum or a gallery space, right, a curator in these capacities, um, are looking at um, a whole bunch of different options, right, that they want to display, right? So they have to make very intentional decisions about what do I want to put in conversation with another, right, in this in this space? What do I want to hang in these walls? What what you know? You're thinking about the sound. You're thinking about texture. You're thinking about all these all these things, right? And so, in that same way, is how I see curriculum curating, right? We are choosing intentionally what we're curating into educational canons, and in the same way, right? When we when I am curating um, an art exhibit, it's thinking about not only what types of art are being represented um, and what types, you know, who are the artists that are, that are creating these representations. Right. But I see it as a very conversational activity, right. As a very um, engaging and intentional space of bringing together voices um, that, for me need to be talking about um, inner deep reflective work. Right. And um, so an example of this, right. At the previous institution that I was working at, um, I had the opportunity of um, facilitating um, a book discussion and um, the book discussion was around Aruna D'Souza's um, protests and three acts um, I don't have the title in front of me, but um, uh, Art, Race, and Protest, I think it was, something like that. But anyway, basically, Aruna D'Souza is um, observing and witnessing what is happening in the art world and historically. And she brings it up, um, you know, taking three different cases and interrogating them, right, of art and artists um, in the United States. Because of that book discussion, um, a lot of things happening in the United States in 2020, a lot of things were happening, right, in our national uh, political climate, right? And one of the things that media was capturing and social media was capturing and that was occurring is police brutality and violence, right? And so we saw, we witnessed as a country, again and again and again and again 
the murders of black and brown bodies, right? And so as this book discussion was occurring, um, the murder of George Floyd occurred. And the political climate and the politicizing of Floyd's murder really um, highlighted, right, not only the racial tensions and the power and privilege of U.S. white supremacy, but it also re-traumatized a lot of people who have been continuously traumatized in these ways. And so, um, you know, the, the conversations of unpacking these things became extremely vulnerable spaces. And so we had the opportunity to um, create an art exhibition around any um, topic or theme that we chose. And so there was a group of artists that we all came together that wanted to create something, right? We wanted to create something that spoke back to the injustices that not only we were seeing as a nation, but that um, artists were feeling in their everyday life, the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, right? The, um, the lack of representation that they had continuously felt, right, as artists. Um, so all artists of color coming together to have these really vulnerable, crucial conversations. And throughout that process, which was about a year, um, this um, this art exhibit then came to came to be, and um, all of the artists, I think it was eight or nine uh, in total, um, and they created the pieces that they wanted to include in the show, and we named the show "Let's Pretend." And the reason for that title which came after a lot of unpacking and conversation as well. Um, it was very, it was very poignant, right? Um, because it's, it's alluding and it's talking to power. It's talking to institutionalized power, right? These are all a group of artists of color who um, were at various stages of their careers, right? Some of them, you know, well-established artists internationally, some of them local artists just starting, intermediate. So there was there was a spectrum of the artists represented, right? And their and their work. And the frustration of um where do I get to showcase my artwork? Who wants to see it? Who's going to understand it? Right? Um, who's going to value it? Right. And, um, you know, if we can think about the climate that we're still living in. Right. And we were living in before 2020. It's just that in 2020, it just exploded in a whole other other way. 
Um, you know, artists, re- the, the artist in the show um, and myself, we really wanted to, to um, expel what we were experiencing and processing of what spaces are we allowed into, right? And I use quotes for that, right? What spaces are we invited into? And what spaces do we just have to go into and say, here I am? Well, Leslie, I'm, I'm grateful for today's conversation and for your telling us about all these different components of your work. And I want to make sure that you have the last word here. So maybe I can ask you, what is the importance of pretending to come back to the title of the exhibition you just told us about? Why is pretending essential to creating a more just society? Well, um, you know, it was, it's very, it's a little bit of that dry wit and satirical, um, you know, tongue in cheek, right. With the title, let's pretend. So that came out of our converse, multiple conversations as a group that we were having about, Um, okay, George Floyd was just murdered. So all of these protests and all of these critiques and all of these, um, you know, reactions are coming out in all of these different, different ways. Right. So let's pretend that you want me in your institutions, right? As an artist of color, as a Latina scholar, as a, um, you know, woman writer, right? Whatever that, that is, right? Let's pretend that you want me to be a part of this conversation. Let's pretend that you want to see me and my art. Let's pretend that, um, you know, you, you care about me. Next up on the show today, we hear from Danielle Demetria East, the director of East Lubbock Art House, an innovative art space here on the South Plains. Danielle founded ELA in February 2020 with the mission of supporting emerging and marginalized artists in the region. Since that time, East Lubbock Art House has been a productive center for anti-racist activism, community building, and artistic activity. And the Humanity Center is proud to have East Lubbock Art House as one of our community partners for our anti-racism theme this year. Recently, I sat down with Danielle to talk about ELA and how that space contributes to the project of anti-racism as it showcases underrepresented artists. Uh, Danielle, thanks for sitting down and speaking with us today. Uh, East Lubbock Art House is one of our community partners with the Humanity Center this year as we work through our anti-racism theme. And I really wanted you to have a chance to speak with our listeners directly about the history of East Lubbock Art House and its mission. So if you could tell us how uh, your uh, project got started and uh, what it hopes to do. Yeah, so um, I'm Danielle Demetria East, um, and I founded East Lubbock Art House. Um, so we're just about, I guess it would be like a year and maybe six, seven, eight months um, after fruition. Uh, so we just, I just started because I've always been interested in art and also just working in the community. Um, and then I just saw like what was going on in Lubbock and I mean, I just always saw like there was a need, like there was always artists who were just like, they wanted to do more and they would like attend the art trail in town and they didn't know how to like get involved and 
I also met like a few like high schoolers and stuff who were interested in like community service. And they were always just like, how do we get involved? How do you do like certain things? And, you know, they wanted to do different things that weren't just like the niche um, form of like giving back and service that often doesn't feel like, you know, it's doing much within the community or much isn't like seen within the community. Um, so I was kind of ex- inspired by Project Row House in Houston, um, the Crenshaw Dairy Mart in Los Angeles, um, and just a few other projects, um, and even like the South Dallas Cultural Center, um, where they do art and also activism. So they're really like embedded in the community. And before I moved to Lubbock, I did a residency in, um, in Dallas in Oak Cliff. Um, and it's, I had a few friends, they started this thing called Sunset Art Studios, which they actually just, I guess a few months ago, like they kind of sunset. So they stopped doing programming because uh, both of the women, they're working full time um, and they started the nonprofit, which was really great. I met a bunch of artists um, and actually the artist that's showcasing work at East Lovick Art House now, I met her through Sunset Art Studios, which was really cool. Um, And it was kind of like the first time that I got like a paid artist stipend. So they paid us like $1,200 to do work for two months. So it was like kind of, I guess I was inspired by that. I just saw this um, as like an opportunity, like it kind of clicked, like it wasn't like first the idea where we would just support artists and people like something for them to do after they leave high school or after they graduate college. But I was just kind of like all those little pieces kind of inspired me to do this. So I was like, we should have more things like Project Row House um, in communities that don't um, have as much access to community service, but have the same issues that are going on in places like Houston um, and that where we have like people of color um, and marginalized people who don't feel as represented. Um, you know, they get to be seen and they um, even a lot of them are also artists. So this is a way for them to, you know, showcase their work and also like, uh, progress within the community. So I just started East Lubbock Art House and I just wanted something that kind of had like my namesake. And then I was just thinking of different ideas and I was like, Elaw would be good. Um, and so it was just that idea. So I was just like, we could just make art. And so it was just based on like um, supporting local and marginalized artists and working towards the betterment of um, the East Lubbock community. And then also just um, having free art classes, um, different art events. Um, and just do different programming like that. I just saw it as like an opportunity for, you know, people who were artists that didn't know how to connect with other artists to come together and also uh, benefit the community. I think, well, you mentioned art classes and you mentioned teaching um, and definitely your space is different than like a traditionally defined kind of gallery space, right? You have a lot of events that aren't just about showing artists work uh, I know you have a free library. You mentioned the classes. What are some of the other events uh, or, or projects or activities that East Lubbock Art House has hosted that you think distinguish this space from other kinds of art spaces? Um, so I guess a few things is when we had our walk to in racism that kind of benefited our programming. Um, and then we've been trying to just do different events that really kind of like connect with our mission and also connect with the community. So not just having like a fundraiser to just have a bake sale, but also doing something that will bring people in to see the artwork, benefit the artists, benefit the community. So actually seeing what um, my community members want to do and also what would benefit the community members. So not just something that might just bring in like a hundred thousand dollars and doesn't really like connect with the community or something that, 
you know, doesn't really like intersect with our mission or vision. So we just have been trying to do different art events, different advocacy events, um, just listen to what people want to do and what's not going on in the community. Like a lot of things I try and see like what's not gone on within the community. So not to repeat something that another organization or business has done already. So, um, and just be inspired by what's going on in other communities. Well, in, you mentioned earlier when you're talking about your residency, uh, obviously you're a working artist yourself. And did any of the vision for East Lubbock Art House come out of your own experience, either your own education as an artist or your own career as an artist that you wanted to, to create a different kind of space based on the limitations you saw in other gallery formats or the way art, the art world sort of operates? Yeah, I guess when I was in college, it was kind of like I went to a conservative um, Baptist college, which was good um, because it was a smaller school, but it was also kind of really conservative. Like I had like one professor that was really conservative. So it was like hard, like it was kind of hard because it's like once you get higher up in college, it's supposed to be where you can express your ideas. And it's not just so much about like, um, you know, learning a medium. And then it was like it was, you could tell, like, it wasn't just about like, oh, <laughs> it kind of started to get really political in a way. So it was, yeah, I saw that. And I was like, I, I hope other people don't have to go through this. Well, with that in mind, what are, you know, thinking broadly, what do you think is the importance of art um, in in working towards an anti-racist society? I mean, what it, what's the connection between art and social change in, in your vision? Yeah. So I think like a lot of times, I think it's just so interconnected. Like a lot of times, like the basis of art is just to like express yourself, express an idea. I think the issue is only when we look at art and we say like, it can't say these certain types of things, like, because art can and it can't, but when it's like, you can't do this, it's just really hard. Like, especially I think working in a nonprofit and like um, having most like art institutions be nonprofit. And then where that also really like stifles art because a lot of nonprofits are ran by um, conservative donors. So that really restricts the arts. Um, and so you can just, you can see how politicized the art world is. But I see like art, like connecting with anti-racism being so important, even like reaching back to like the Harlem Renaissance era, um, the civil rights era. And I always think about like, if we didn't have like photographers who like photograph so many of like the, um, the movements and everything that went on with the civil rights movement, like people would say like they do now um, that none of it happened. I know, I know that, um, you know, in a lot of your calls that I see um, for art submissions and it seems in the sort of way that you envision East Lubbock art house, you're also thinking quite intersectionally. Um, So we've been talking about um, the history of racism and and anti-racist activism, but it seems that your vision is really attentive to identities across a lot of different categories. Why do you think that's important to, you know, the way we approach anti-racism? I always feel like those, like, you know, the different margins, like they're all like interconnected. Um, And it's like, if one person's suffering, it's... um, it's not right to ignore someone else's suffering in a way. But I also noticed like the people that we work with, um, a lot of them are people of color, but then they're also, you'll see though they're women or female identifying. Um, a lot of them are queer. Um, a lot of them are low income. So it's just kind of a thing that like, you know, it just kind of happened. Like they're all, you know, this and this. So it's something that, you know, didn't really focus on, but 
it's something that just really comes out. Um, so what what are you know activities coming up uh, with East Lubbock Art House, and what what have you got on the go? Because I always I know that you always have many many things going on at once. Yeah, so we still we have like every week we have the um, free art classes. So we've invited like different artists to teach the art classes, and they're all in the evening from four to six, and they're all. Um, not community based and like intergenerational. So we have from like four to like however old if people want to participate. So the mediums and the projects that we work in, like it's fit for all ages. Um, and then we've been having like monthly events. Like we have a fundraiser coming up called Brunch and Booze. So we'll have about 20 vendors out. Um, so it'll be really cool to see all of the artists. I don't think we've, we've worked with a few, but we haven't like had an event where we showcase like all of their work and a lot of them I didn't even know. So it's going to be just exciting to meet them in person too. Um, And then we have a lot of volunteers that are coming out to help um, just serve the event. So we've been really focusing on like having events that are like really affordable, um, something that's not really expensive or either you can get a lot from it. Um, And so we'll have like some neighboring businesses that are going to come and help us serve the pancakes. We have like the, Black Student Union at Tech that's coming out as well. Um, And then also volunteer firefighters. So one of our board members just became a firefighter. So they're also coming out. So it's a way to like connect with other organizations and businesses that we like haven't done before. So it's going to be, it's going to be something to like connect with all of them. Um, And then we're also fundraising to like purchase our building um, that we currently rent from. So that's a big endeavor. So we just like submitted um, our first letter of intent for hopes that the owner will accept how much we want to give him. So we're just excited about like getting the space um, and just having a bigger space and dedicated space for like a library since we have so many books, um, just a space for like the art classes. Cause we've been having to like really like rearrange stuff to like have the art classes and we have more people coming out. So it'd be nice to like, actually be able to serve that many people that we'd like to serve um, and not just have to turn away people sometimes. Um, and then also have like a dedicated workspace. Um, so we'll have space where we can um, do more printmaking. Um, we can also invite artists to like come and work within the space. Um, and they don't have to take a, take down the work within two months, like our um, art exhibitions. So it'll be really good to have that space. And then we'll also have the back area um, so we can just, do whatever we want. And then we're working on also putting up a mural. So. Wow. If anybody listening wanted to donate to help with your fundraising to purchase the building, um, how would they go about doing that? Um, they can go to our website at eastlubbockarthouse.org. Um, there's ways to donate on there. Um, also through Cash App, Venmo, PayPal. It's all like East Lubbock Art House or eastlubbockarthouse at gmail.com. And they can just email us as well, or they could, mail a check to our location and it's 405 MLK Junior Boulevard and Suite B and then it's in Lubbock, Texas and the zip code 79403. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Humanities Now. I'm grateful to Danielle and Leslie for sitting down and speaking with me for this month's episode and I encourage you to visit the Humanities Center's website to see the full range of ways we're engaging the topic of anti-racism all year. If you haven't already, please listen to last month's episode to hear members of our programming team for this year as they discuss the many ways we might consider what anti-racism entails. 
We'll be back next month with more discussion of anti-racism as we speak with Dr. Sebastian Ramirez, the Humanities Center's 2021-2022 postdoctoral fellow in the humanities. I'll sit down with Sebastian and discuss his scholarship and how it contributes to these important conversations. As always, many thanks to the Humanities Center staff, Gavin Stockard and Justin Hughes, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. Please join us again soon.